Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and I love buying my comics at Meltdown Comics, and I know you do too. So I'm going to give you a little gift, and that gift is a discount. So if you use my password, which is going to be Pod Sequentialism Rocks, to any of the employees that work here at checkout, they will give you a discount on your comics. How much is that discount? 11%. Can't beat that with a bag of hammers. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles and the Luz de Jesus Gallery. And um, before we get into the topic of today's program, I wanna just give a really quick shout out to the folks at Loot Crate. And if you're unfamiliar with Loot Crate, it's a monthly subscription box service, and it's mainly aimed at you know epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. And basically, for less than twenty bucks a month, you get six to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one of a kind stuff, all kinds of just really neat things. So go ahead and go to uh, lootcrate.com, www.lootcrate.com forward slash podsec, P-O-D-S-E-Q. And uh, when you get there, you get to enter the code PODSEC3, and that will save you $3 on any new subscription. And, you know, I've, I've gotten amazing stuff. We've gotten some uh, Captain America Civil War stuff, which I just opened this weekend and was amazing. And uh, we'll talk about that in a different show. I don't want to blow it for anybody. But um, go ahead and check out Loot Crate. So um, what I want to talk about this week is something that we've, um, if you follow the, the Pop Sequentialism blog, um, I've been talking about a little bit. And if you follow, follow me on Facebook, um, it's become a big conversation and a big topic about, um, you know, Ghost in the Shell. But before we get to that, I want to welcome my guest, Christine Adams, who is a model and um, can kind of fill us in on some stuff a little bit but um why i wanted to have her on the show initially anyways is just because i think it's great to get the perspective of different industries that break out of fandom and as uh, someone who has interest in the same types of pop culture and geek culture things that i think a lot of my listeners have and that i certainly do um it illuminates a whole different career path that um a lot of people don't think about and then once you do you're like oh of course so uh, welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you. It's now, that's great to have you here. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself. A little bit about me. I am a petite freelance model. I travel wherever work takes me. And in my free time, I'm a bit of a gamer. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're half Japanese. Yep. And you're half Czech. Yep. And so it's interesting to have, you have a really specific look. Thank you. And so you, you <laughs> I'm sure you work a lot. I try. Yeah. And do you think that your particular background lends more to a certain type of work? Or do you feel like you're you're pretty much, you, you cover a lot of ground? I think I cover a lot of ground, but a lot of people kind of tend to cast me towards this, I guess, more futuristic feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I have more of a mixed ethnicity, so people enjoy doing cyborgs or something where it's not so blonde Caucasian girl. Right. And so, um, 
I think I first came across you. You hit my feed because my friend Steve Diagetti, who is somebody that I collect to as as an art uh, collector, my wife and I have quite a few pieces of Steve's in our house, and I've always been a huge fan of his photography. And you came across the feed, and then I realized that you had also worked on a project with Ash Thorpe, which was a recreation of the Ghost in the Shell opening credits. Yes, and. It's interesting because this is right in the middle of everybody talking about this. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not going to bury the lead here, but I'm going to bury the lead a little bit. And we're going to get back to that. But I want to talk about how that type of work, having the look that you have and, and being a photographer's model, how does one get into that line of work? Like when do you realize that, okay, I have a really interesting look and people want to take my picture? Uh, funny enough, I didn't really start intending to be a model. Mm-hmm. It was definitely more of a passion project. I used to play Dungeons and Dragons back in the day, 3.5e. Mm-hmm. And I noticed whenever I wanted to look for a portrait, it was a nightmare to Google it. Mm-hmm. You know, you want, oh, I want a black haired elf girl who's pale. Yeah. And it never quite fit. So after a while, I just decided that the best way to make something that would fe- not feel, would fit my mental image would be mm-hmm. to model it myself. Right. That's just kind of where it started. And this is kind of, you know, this really fits into what I think we specialize in in the program is this kind of DIY nature that I'm always talking to people about. If you have an idea, if you want to do a comic or if you want to get a film project going, that the best way to do it is to just do it. And that a lot of people are kind of waiting for a company to come along and kind of rescue them from not doing that Mm -hmm. and the truth of the matter is that it's just so much easier and more gratifying to notice that there is something that is lacking and fulfill that need and especially if you can fulfill that need for yourself first and realize that there are a lot of other people that have that share that passion and share an interest in the same subject definitely so you're you're starting to you're gaming and you're playing dungeons and dragons and you're starting to become involved in wanting to take photographs of the costumes and things that you're doing. And so from that point forward, you must discover that there are other people doing the same thing and that there's this community. Yeah. Uh, I was going to college that kind of ended abruptly because mm-hmm. this ended up being more more career than just passion. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a lot of work out there. <laughs> what were you going to school for? Uh, political science. That didn't last long. Rescued from poli sci. <laughs> so uh, remember this, listeners. Your passions can save you from a a completely wasted degree in political science. So the um, so what were the first the first shoots that you were scheduling, and was it the type of thing where you were setting up a camera and and shooting yourself, or or did you find people that were already working as photographers to kind of join you in the project and then that led to other photographers just booking you as a model yeah definitely the latter i threw myself out there i took a couple really horrible cell phone photos just to show people like here's how i look Mm -hmm. and this guy came along and he had this really beautiful renaissance style photography Mm -hmm. and i mean he was pretty bold he was like so uh i know this is your first shoot but how do you feel about doing this more of an art nude style because mm-hmm. you're so small and I was just like okay well let's find out yep. yeah and you go from there yeah and I mean it's it's good to establish someone's comfort level and I think that one thing that I, I definitely want you to address too is how to handle those types of requests and I think that there is a fear among 
some some women at least and and probably a lot of men that when they if they're turn up to a modeling gig and it's not articulated that it's expected to be of either um some state of ill dress or non-dress or or nudity mm-hmm. or um in some cases I, I know that there have um there have been advertisements for um film work where people are extras and then they show up and and it did advertise that there might be nudity, but then it might be a simulated sex act that these things really should be articulated up front before it shouldn't be something that you learn when you get on set. Yeah. Surprises are not comfortable. Right. Of any, of any stripe. And especially as you know, some of you're a small girl Mm -hmm. and you know, you show up on, on assignment. If the, the potential for something to go weird is there if things aren't booked through the proper um, channels. But certainly when you start out, a lot of stuff is booked not through what might be considered the regular channels. Mm-hmm, definitely. So this is your first shoot, basically, and you do you do a nude shoot and you're comfortable with it and that's fantastic. And the photographer had a, a portfolio that you had seen. Yes. And so you realized that his work was good mm-hmm. and that that wasn't a concern. And so there's a mutual benefit in being able to trade um, photos for work mm-hmm. and and getting the um the types of images that you want and that helps build up your portfolio and that seems to be a pretty common thing yes that's very common so now going to the next level realizing it's like that was no big deal yeah. like I, I you know until you do that you don't know if you can do that and so you're you're able to to book a session and realize that your boundaries are a little bit wider maybe you thought that they were and then that opens up the possibility for a lot more work definitely and so how many people have you shot with at this point Whew. i mean i've been doing this professionally just for the last three years since i moved to los angeles but mm-hmm. like even from a hobby sense it's been six so i i'd say hundreds <laughs> and how old are you i'm 24 24 so 18 to 24 yep and um rescued from poli sci uh, discovering um, an interest in cosplay based on Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. um, and playing the game first. How? When did you start gaming? Oh gosh, I mean, you know, I had the the SNES I think gifted to me by my parents. There was the PS2, GameCube, N64, like that whole uh, area. Mm-hmm. I had a computer made for me at the time. I didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. I've learned now, and I got into a thing called Neverwinter Nights, which mm-hmm. was basically my introduction to Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it goes back since as long as I can remember. Again, I'm going to feel incredibly old. I'm probably older than your parents. <laughs> and, the um, you know, my, my, first, my first experience playing Dungeons & Dragons was from the pamphlets that Gary and Ernie Gygax used to publish before there was a Dungeon Master's Manual, before there was a, a Monster Manual, before there was a Player's Handbook, because the guys that were a few years older than me had been buying that stuff in the back of fantasy gaming magazines and at, like, conventions in Boston and then I, I got the the first edition um, I think players manual and had been interested in it and then got like the um, the basic set when the first basic set came out mm-hmm. which was just Dungeons and Dragons not advanced Dungeons and Dragons and you know fell in love with the game and I was like I've never seen dice like this before Oh, yeah, the, the D20s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even like a D8, you know, like yeah, most people had really only in the D4, you know, like I'd only seen six-sided dice my entire life up until that point. But, um, you know, the the interesting thing, and I, I'm encountering this more and more, you know, we're, we're, we're here recording at Meltdown, and, you know, you can see the scheduling wall up, and when mm-hmm. you first came in, you noticed, oh, oh, I see Satine's name on yep. the board. I know Satine. It's like, well, yeah, you know, Satine, when we had her on and we were talking about gaming, 
And, you know, I explained that, uh, you know, when I was 12 and 13, that no girls wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons. And she said, you're wrong. She was like, they did want to play, but they had older brothers and boyfriends that were just jerks. <laughs> and it just discouraged them from ever wanting to play again. And I, I realized that that, that might have been true, that it probably was true, that there were other girls, um, you know, in the neighborhood that might have been interested if it hadn't been such a boys club then. And certainly now gaming has expanded into a, a pretty healthy mix. I mean, it's, I think, you know, among the people that I know, I know more girls that, that role play than, than guys at this point. It's definitely opened up. I mean, 10 years ago, I think when I first started playing online, I actually kind of masqueraded my gender as male mm -hmm. just because it, it just made things a lot simpler. I would imagine, you know, that the same problems that face uh, young women in day-to-day -day life are probably even worse online, you know, that, um, <laughs> that you know, the, the, the terrible, I mean, we all know about Gamergate and all that stuff, but just like the, the abuse and the, um, the um, you know, sexist type of comments. And mm -hmm. it's like, hey, you know, I'm really just here to, 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 to go gaming, you know, to, to do this adventure, not really to have a bunch of like uncomfortable conversations with somebody. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But, um, and certainly, you know, you, you find your crew and you find your, your, um, your pack and you can kind of game with the same people again and again. And, and you know, obviously friendships form. And when we had, um, Mylon Starley on, I mean, she had somebody come and visit while we were podcasting. This was like, Oh, why don't you meet me at meltdown on podcasting? Some dude she totally met online. And it's like, this happens guys. It's like that the, the online gaming community is a community. And as a result, there's a lot of dating that goes on too, but don't assume that's why people are on there. That's very true. <laughs> so, after um, becoming interested in this and you're starting to book, um, people are contacting you to book you as a model because mm -hmm. they're seeing your pictures. You're, you're shooting with some named photographers, definitely names within the genre. And you start coming across the, the attention of people who are doing film projects and other types of, of not specifically just photo or um, even you know, like gaming-centric or cosplay-centric projects. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, one of those people was Ash Thorpe. And so Ash had been developing the Gets 2501 project, which is the Ghost in the Shell, a recreation, live-action recreation of the opening credit sequence done through a series of still photographs. Correct. And when, um, when I came across that and I posted it to... Um, a large group of people on Facebook and in, and in other media. And most of them, most of them very interested in manga and very interested in uh, anime had never seen it. Really? And these are people that were arguing, you know, about the merits or shortcomings of this new Paramount Ghost in the Shell project. And when they saw this, they were like, this makes my point for me. And I was like, well, of course, you, they totally could have done it with, with an Asian actress. And this girl's amazing. And the, um, you were sort of perfectly cast. You know, you talked about the fact that you sort of do, your look lends itself maybe to Android or something like that. And it's because there's some Asian, you can see it, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily the overlying like dominant thing like you are a mix and it's a nebulous mix in the way but differently than say like jessica alba was mm -hmm. to t tv audiences when dark angel was was on television that she represented kind of a a blanket of mixed ethnicity and that it was easy to and, and she's she's like five or six different things but um 
you know, that what's great is that I think that that opens up the conversation about, well, well, yes, that you are half Japanese and that that's a very good representation of that character. So that uh, Kusanagi doesn't look 100% Asian. No, she's definitely ambiguous herself. Right. And I think that was the intention of, you know, definitely of of um, Memoru Oshi in the way that he portrays the character in the animated Ghost in the Shell. But that even does go back to the manga by Shiro um, Masamune. And I've seen this argued in various degrees of, um, of success that um, there is this idea based on a book called Manga, 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 which I believe was written by an American, that puts forth this idea that all Japanese manga is seen by all Japanese as being inherently Japanese, regardless of the way that the people are drawn. Mm -hmm. And that seems to make sense, but it is entirely untrue. That that was a theory that this one person had based on him discussing things with people that he knew in Japan, that whether or not they assumed that what they were reading took place in Japan. And I think that it's a blanket statement you can say about anything. That's true. That if you don't articulate a city and you're American and comics are drawn a certain way, then you may just assume that everybody in that comic is American. And that that is a a possibility. It's It's maybe not the intention of the person who wrote and illustrated it, but it's a possibility. But the nature of illustration in America is such that you get ethnicity drawn into the characters. Mm -hmm. And it has been something for decades. Whereas in Japan, that's not always the case. And that certainly by the time that Ghost in the Shell was being written and drawn, that there were differences in the illustrations, even within that one manga, that articulated that these characters are more Asian than these other characters. That's very true. And so when Paramount announced that they were going to be making a live-action film and that they had cast Scarlett Johansson, there was a huge uproar. And I understand the anger, and I think that people started almost immediately saying whitewashing, and you saw hashtag whitewashing, and I disagreed with it. And it's difficult, because I'm a white guy, to defend something like whitewashing because I'm white. And there's this um, perception that it's somehow impossible that because I'm white that I can somehow objectively stand back and look at something um, with the same... Um, objectivity that someone else may bring to the table. and But my point wasn't that I was defending necessarily the casting of Scarlett Johansson. I think that the casting of whoever is able to command a budget based on the promise of box office return is fine if the creators of the project are fine with it. And I think that once you agree to sell a project for a certain amount of money, the amount of input you have is automatically blocked. And the assumption by fandom that people who are spending millions and hundreds of millions of dollars on a project have to listen to a small uh, core audience is a little silly. But I do understand the frustration. And I think that there are definitely examples of whitewashing, especially with certain um, projects of Asian origin um, and certainly when they cast the Chinese actress as the lead in Memoirs of a Geisha um, people were really upset about it but what I'm seeing now 
are those same types of people, if not those same exact people, saying that they would be fine if it was an Asian actress of any stripe rather than Scarlett Johansson. And that, to me, rings as kind of, um, well, anti, anti-progressive? Or in some way, it's like, well, are you stepping back on what your opinion was previously to make room for this new argument? And I have to ask you, what, what, do you, what was your instinct about the news of her casting? And we'll get to the whole other issue of, gen- of gender and racial morphing afterwards, but did it upset you? Uh, I actually really like Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. I think she's a wonderful actress. Mm-hmm. The only problem that I personally have with the casting is, from what I understand, they're unwilling to greenlight Scarlett Johansson to have her own Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. So I find it kind of a, I don't want to say hypocritical, but it kind of is. Uh, Hollywood is willing to say, oh, she can draw all this money in four ghosts in the shell, but we don't believe she can make enough money for a Marvel movie. So which is it? Well, I'll say this about that. And I I do think it is kind of silly that the star of Lucy, a character connected to absolutely nothing else in pop culture, which was a huge hit movie, um, that that actress wouldn't be able to carry a Black Widow film even of a small budget, which mm-hmm. would be fine. Um, and I think that almost any character that's been in the Avengers could have a small project, but I think their plan is bigger. And the plan at Disney and at Marvel is that it's better to spend $300 million to make $600 million than it is to spend $50 million to make $150 million. And that seems to be a bad business model that you're making three times your money back on less cost, but the amount of advertising that go in, that goes into it's going to be the same so that they're still spending a hundred million dollars on marketing and advertising so they'd rather spend more money to get that billion dollar box office but that i get your point and it's absolutely true you know that it it should be that a popular and important character from that universe should get a solo film before maybe ant-man yeah you know? I, I wasn't able to watch that one. Was he actually like truly small? Yeah, it's a good movie too. It, it's, really? It's actually a good movie and a lot <laughs> of it is because it's Paul Rudd. I enjoyed it. I don't think it's the best Marvel movie, but I thought it was enjoyable and it actually made more money than um, some of the other films that it may surprise people when you compare box office compared to the marketing and advertising budget if we were to get that. And I've, I've got some unofficial numbers and the um, the you know, the production budget, that it was more profitable than a lot of other films that are con- that people consider to be successful, wow. including previous Marvel movies. But that what's, um, what's strange to me is that, you know, with a marketable star, it would seem like that would be more likely to be a hit, but it wasn't part of the marketing plan towards the Phase 3 Marvel Universe. So they needed to give Ant-Man a movie to justify bringing him into the Avengers to go into the Infinity Gauntlet and the things that are going to be happening now after Captain America Civil War. But another another point that I, I don't want to, um, to let go because I think it's important is that if every single person who went and saw Ghosts in the Shell in the theater were to boycott the Ghosts in the Shell Paramount live-action movie, they'd only lose $100,000. Yeah. 
That's how much Ghost in the Shell made when it when it ran theatrically. That's it. A hundred thousand dollars. No wonder. <laughs> well, of course, it only opened in two cities, yeah. probably, and, and it was a, more of a festival release where it was a road show, two weeks here, two weeks there. So it's an unfair comparison. But if Marvel had only marketed Iron Man to the subscribers of the Iron Man comic book, there'd be 124,000 tickets being sold you know, before that movie got made. And of course, you have to shoot bigger. Mm -hmm. So this kind of, um, this feeling of ownership that fans have over projects um, is sort of, I think, heavy-handed in a lot of cases. But again, I, I, I have to feel compassion for the plight of a lot of kids who don't look like me, you know, who aren't white kids with blonde hair and blue eyes, <laughs> um, which is, you know, most of the world is not me, that every time they turn on the television set and every time they go to the movies, there's a lot of people who look like me and that's got to be a source of frustration. And I'm always encouraging that people, you know, get their voices heard and, and make projects so that people have no choice but to see the profitability and the viability in independent productions. And I like to always point to the Wong Fu people that they started their own YouTube channel. It's huge. They've, they were able to back their own film, which they also premiered on YouTube. Um, it was kickstarted, I think, in an hour or maybe even less. And what they're doing is they're showing the rest of the world that there's a huge Asian American market. And these are like kids of, um, I believe, Taiwanese descent, um, born in America. So they're American-born Chinese ABC kids from the San Gabriel Valley, offices in Pasadena. And, um, and they're millionaires. And they've, they've become millionaires because they produced a product about their experience that everybody else responded to. And because it debuted online and didn't involve a secondary expensive um, um, vehicle like uh, a theatrical release or a television show, that they found their audience quickly and that audience was international. That's uh, interesting, actually, that we we started off saying if, if there's nothing there that you can find, make it yourself. Yeah. And with the advent of the Internet, even gaming is going that way. Yeah. With, with the power the publishers have, I mean, we're allowing ourselves to kind of put forth this platform that we otherwise wouldn't have had. Mm -hmm. So I guess if we're not happy with Scarlett Johansson's casting with Paramount, we can always, as Asians or African-Americans or whoever we are, mm -hmm. set forward and put down a story, make the fans... Mm -hmm enforce Hollywood or gaming or whomever to listen. I agree. And I, I think that, that Hollywood, that there's this idea that there's like five incredibly racist overlords that run Hollywood. <laughs> and it's just not true. It, it just does not hold water. That the, the model is profit. And so the risk is calculated. And people will they'll counter with their subjective belief in something rather than a concrete um, you know, collection of data. And as somebody who used to do that for a living, I understand what the metrics are. When you comp titles, you have to have comparable titles and you have to have numbers based on that to view what a success is going to be. And so the casting of Scarlett Johansson to Paramount, number one, it gives them the ability to work with a star that they might not be able to work with otherwise. Mm -hmm. So they get a piece of that Disney magic by getting the star of a Disney franchise involved in their movies, hopefully to set up their own franchise 
knowing that she's still connected to this other thing, which just builds up more popularity for her and other projects. This is just, it's good marketing, and it's why stars get paid a lot of money for projects. The other thing is that with her established box office record, you're looking at somebody who's got, you know, billions of dollars in box office return. There is no other actress that has that, that is viable for this role. And if you were to look at, you know, the top box office gross of um, Asian women, you'd have to go so far down the list of, of, of actresses to hit somebody who's Asian that has guaranteed box office return, except in Bollywood. Oh. <laughs> you know, counting India, India is on the Asian continent. And the of the top 10 actors in the world, highest paid actors in the world, um, I think four or five, so almost half, are Asian men. Oh, wow. But they're in films that almost never get covered by American press because mm-hmm. Bollywood films play very small communities in the United States or are parallel imported on DVD and um, go direct into people's homes or they're streaming them off of uh, video services. Very different markets. <laughs> it's a very different market. It's a harder metric for people to pay attention to. These people live incredibly wealthy in India and they make their movies there. They occasionally go on tour, but um, it's not something that the American public sees very generally. And so there is no audience for them here in America, at least not to greenlight an American movie. And if you're looking to make your money back in the United States, which is one of the biggest um, money markets in the world and where the um, the recoup on investment is easy to see. Um, so when companies make money in India, 90% of that money has to stay in India. Mm-hmm. So they can't even get their money out of the country. So when you're looking to make your money back, you're now looking at the U.S. and China. And so to make money back in China, you would either cast a headline headlining Chinese star or up-and-coming Chinese star in a bit role but you shoot in China and you show um, a recognizable landscape, buildings like Transformers, the film that was that made you know three hundred million dollars in in a hundred million dollars in China on three million dollars of advertising. Wow, that was shot in Shanghai. It's a heck of a profit there. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know so they're looking to 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 recoup on this type of of business plan. And I think that people who get really passionate about it and they, they let their emotions get the better of them, their frustrations enter into the argument, not in a constructive or even realistic way, but just in an emotional way. And I'm not discounting that because I think that that is a valid form of expression, but understand that that anger and that accusation towards a studio are two different things. And to quote, you know, Baz Luhrmann, uh, understand that um, that getting upset about that is as productive as trying to solve a math equation by chewing bubblegum. You know, that they are, they are disparate things. That it can be true that someone is upset that uh, this casting has happened, but that doesn't automatically mean that that casting decision was made specifically to slight them. And But what we come to is there are a couple of actresses that are on the cusp of a type of stardom that would very much be supported by a large swath of the public if they were given a major lead. And we've seen now on Facebook, you know, hashtag cast John Lo- um, John Lone. Oh, no, John, John Chen. Who is it? John Chen? No. Um, Harold and Kumar. 
Oh, I'm drawing a blank there. <laughs> um, Harold, yeah. Oh, I don't know, man. People are doing a whole bunch of. Yes. And um, there's been a whole bunch of like people making fake rom-com posters with him as the leading man, and it's really picking up steam. He mm-hmm. has established box office. You know that um, it's it should be a no-brainer that there is an audience for films that are more diverse and have um, you know a a wider range of recognizable faces. You know, not just you know Caucasian actors and. I think that with a couple of of actresses and a couple of Japanese actresses that could carry a film if given the chance, but again, it goes against the metric. The way that things are calculated are that you have to have established box office. It has to be pointed to the fact that you're a viable reason uh, that that movie has had success. But um, well, that's kind of where the the secondary argument comes in. This is more just of gender and races in Hollywood in general. Mm-hmm. Is that there seems to be less lead and or supporting roles for other races Mm -hmm. so you're kind of creating this dynamic where you tell asian actresses in the case of ghost in the shell well you're not drawing enough of a box office scarlett johansson makes like crap Mm -hmm. tons of money we're going to give it to her and the response is how can i make a box office if there are no roles that i'm given right like doctor strange and marvel i believe was played by a white female yeah the ancient one is being played by tilda swinton Mm -hmm. and um and the the argument is it's interesting because I I don't think that Marvel or even really Disney are big offenders of no. of this. I think that they do have a pretty diverse cast, and it this character was selected as a specific example of Hollywood whitewashing, and I would disagree with it because the Ancient One is not inherently Asian, has been drawn as Asian in the comic book, but isn't it doesn't have to be but it would have been a really interesting possibility i mean it seems like the type of role that should have gone to an asian actor Mm -hmm. and instead it went to a white actress and so maybe they were saying well we're going to give an important role to a an oscar-winning actress yeah instead of to just another guy and again look down the list there's not a lot of um, Asian Oscar winning actresses. So that if they're trying to bring, you know, that that acclaim to the casting, you got Benedict Cumberbatch, you need to have, you know, someone who's such a, a, a British stage actor, then you need to counterpoint that with somebody else who has that same stage stature. And then the villain in the film is, of course, an Oscar nominated you know, African-American actor or actually British um, African actor. Mm-hmm. And so there is, if you look at it from that point of view, there is consistency in what they were going for. Oh, yeah. The other thing that I hear a lot of uh, accusations of whitewashing is Cloud Atlas. And there are white actors in quote-unquote yellow face, mm-hmm. but they play themselves over the course of centuries and Asian actors play white versions of themselves over the course of centuries as well. And so I feel like when that film is used as an example of whitewashing, that it's also, it's it's a wrong example. And I, I feel like when people use the wrong 
um, point of contention to push their point forward that they weaken the point. Right. There are plenty of examples of whitewashing that we can point to. Gods of Egypt, perhaps? Yes. That one got, that one got nasty. That is egregious. <laughs> you know, and I mean, but again, like the bigger problem is who the heck is making a sword and sandal flick this late in the game when they stop being profitable five years earlier? That, you know, there's got to be a, a true Hollywood story behind that. But that... um. But I think that the the biggest, more egregious example of this type of of Hollywood attitude to me is brownwashing, mm. and it's this offensive idea that all brown people are the same. So we can cast, say, Oscar Isaac, a Guatemalan, as Apocalypse, an Egyptian. That to me would seem to be far more offensive than replacing a race with a clearly different race. Right. It's just like looking at a group of like a Korean person, a Chinese person, Japanese person saying, oh, they all look the same. Just it doesn't matter. And that's why people were so offended with the casting of a Chinese actress in a Japanese role in Memoirs of a Geisha. You know, having Zhang Ziyi in that role really bent people out of shape because they felt that it was sending the message that all Asians are the same. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. I understand that as a, a strong criticism of that type of casting. And so... I'm surprised that there hasn't been a bigger uproar over this particular casting in the X-Men Apocalypse movie. I kind of feel like we have to pick and choose our battles at this point. Our, yeah. our argument is getting so diluted that I feel any message that we can make to Hollywood will be lost. Yeah. Because we're telling them, well, you can't have a Chinese person play a Japanese person, but you can't have a white person. But wait, no, if you're going to have a white person, it's okay if you have a Chinese person. Yeah. Just, it gets so messy. And then there's the worst thing, like I said, that we would talk about. Which is the um, the racial blending that it turned out after the the studio made the argument ostensibly that Scarlett Johansson was a big star and that's why they were casting her that they were also working on a um, a computer graphic program that would slightly blend her Asian which defeats the argument that it had to be Scarlett Johansson it does and I mean that's like it's sort of like if you're winning the battle. Just, you know, don't make it worse on yourself. And and I feel that th- this happens a lot. And that, to you know, I'd already said that I felt that the, the team they had put together to make the movie was a bigger concern to me than who starred in it. Mm-hmm. And by having the guy behind, you know, Snow White and the Huntsman directing this film, I thought was just possibly the worst person you could give the movie to. I find it an interesting decision. Yeah. There's definitely some some other reasons going on back there that we don't see. Like, where where do they land on him? Like, were they shooting for Stephen Summers, you know, director of The Mummy, and then they wind up on the guy <laughs> who made this this kind of not very good Snow White movie? I mean, it's, you know, to me, it's like, because you have to look at it that way. Like, when you see a movie, and you're like, how did so-and-so get cast? It's like, well, he wasn't their first choice. Yeah. You know, they wanted Harrison Ford, and they couldn't get him, and then they wanted, you know, um, maybe... Um, Oh, I don't know, Bruce Willis, and he wasn't available, and they wind up with The Rock, you know. <laughs> and and now they're like they're they're shooting for The Rock, and they're getting who knows, you know, the the guy who lost last week's MMA fight instead, and then the budget gets dropped, and you know it goes straight to video, and you know not to say anything bad about any of these actors, you know, they all have their merits in their own ways, but um, that that type of thing sent the signal to me that the wrong people were in charge, and then you look at, you know, we were talking earlier that 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 there's this perception that maybe Max Landis was somehow going to weave, weave his way into the project. Um, He's certainly a big supporter of it. Yeah, and um, we'll see what happens with that. I, I don't know that that's an improvement, but um, 
only because I, I don't think it sends the signal that they're putting it in the capable hands of an established director. Right. So and, it's not even Scarlett Johansson's the problem. It's just going to be like a potentially kind of terrible ghost in the show movie, which would be heartbreaking. Right. What is it Avatar that they just, the, the last airbender? Oh, yeah. Oh, that that was just a depressing film. With an A-list director and, and just a terrible movie, certainly an A-list direct, director on the decline, but a terrible, terrible film. And to say that the casting of, of that lead character was the biggest problem would be like writing a speeding ticket at the Indianapolis 500. <laughs> um, but, you know, you look at the other names that are connected to the, to the new Gits movie that Paramount's got going on, and it's, you know, you've got Jonathan Hearn, I think, um, who wrote Street Kings, I think is the biggest script that he's gotten off the ground as the writer. Um, maybe he's the biggest ghost in the show, fan in the world, and I just don't know that. Um, and you get Jamie Moss, his name is now being thrown in the script. He wrote Straight Outta Compton, another white guy who wrote Straight Outta Compton. Um, some people may have already had a problem with that notion. <laughs> and um, and again, not a script that's known really for being a great script so much as it is just telling the story that people wanted to know about you know, iconic characters in hip hop. Also not very related to reality from what I understand, but that having been somebody who did the research for projects before buying them for for um, studios and I wrote coverage you know in my early 20s um, on scripts and on books to um, submit for possibility for for being licensed um, later as a marketing director I would um, you know pass judgment on acquisitions based on my uh, my comps and somebody has that job at Paramount and they certainly came across Ash Thorpe's project with you, you know, as uh, Kusana uh, Kusanagi, and how they could have seen that and not immediately called up Ash Thorpe and yeah. said, you know, we've got this this project. We saw what you did. You are clearly a huge fan of it. You've done this incredible job in in bringing this to life. We'd like to bring you on board to do this, you know. And I just don't understand how that didn't happen, knowing how difficult it is to get projects that's, that are a little bit challenging and a little bit pensive through the system, that for it to have reached the point that Scarlett Johansson is attached to the project, that means it's been in development for years. And I know it's been in development for years because I remember working on a translation of the manga that had not been turned into film for Ernest Dickerson about 15, 16 years ago. I mean, they've had the rights for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, and Ernest, who loves manga and, and loves anime, would be a hundred times better choice than the people that they have connected to it now, even with his lack of box office. I mean, he's an Academy Award-nominated cinematographer who's been a director on his own since splitting with Spike Lee after um, Malcolm X, but um, he's gotten projects off the ground he works a lot he does a lot of television he's done the sopranos he's done i think he did daredevil uh, maybe this last uh season this guy sounds perfect he's amazing <laughs> and but he's not a marquee name with a huge successful track record in motion picture um releases in the u.s um he's a journeyman a guy who, who works a lot and i believe i remember reading a version of a script i think that he had worked on or was a script that he had been hoping to work on that came out a couple years after um working on translations 
um, for him specifically. And it was fine. It was in, in step with what you'd expect a live action screenplay of that project to be. But in any project like that, the real star is the production designer. It has to be the people who capture the look, the feel, and that inarticulatable smell of what that world looks like. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see how they're going to get that from the guy that directed Snow White and the Huntsman. And most likely, once everything's released and all said and done, the conversation is not even going to be about Scarlett Johansson. It's just going to be, man, what were they thinking? Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, in a way, wouldn't that be worse if they cast oh. a Japanese actress in that role? Because right. then the possibility of that ever happening again is just sunk down into the low, you know, five percentile. Yeah, you just look at it as well. You know, if we did cast Scarlett Johansson, that might have been a different thing. Yeah. At least this way, Hollywood can see. Well, maybe they'll see. We haven't seen the numbers yet. Mm-hmm. That it's not always about the lead actress. Mm. Although I truly think if it's going to be that much of a a bummer of a movie it's going to be the right decision to have her because that's going to be the only reason why people watch it yeah if it recoups any money it recoups money specifically because it's scarlett johansson and not in spite of her maybe that's why they cast her yeah (laughs) you know if you know you've got a stinker but you've got you have to push forward for production because if you and who knows what the what the mechanics of the deal are they may have a a deadline where a movie has to be produced by a certain amount of time or a bigger amount of money gets cut but i i think what's interesting is that there's been a lack of any kind of negative feedback from any of the principles involved in the original source materials and which is i mean in step with the japanese-ness of it that it's not a common practice for um a japanese creator to be critical of of anything that comes from beyond their work you know that once they've signed off on a project they stay silent about it unless it's made and unless they have something positive to say it's just the nature of the culture and the way the business is conducted i think that's the way to go yeah well, uh, hit me with some uh, some websites. Where can people find you? I am on it's i d i i v i l dot com. Mm-hmm. It's not pronounceable. I, I can give you a couple attempts at it, but. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what have you been working on? Currently, I am working on a. I can't say the artist's name, but it's it's kind of this long flowing fabrics, and we'll have wolf dogs, foxes. Like d- different animals that kind of step in. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a very dark, moody. Well, this sounds like James Jean. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and maybe I just blew it. But, um, and of course, gets2501.com is the website that um, Ash set up for that recreation of the Ghost in the Shell yep. um, opening credits. If you haven't seen it, I mean, seriously, just unless you're driving a car, pull up <laughs> your phone, get on the website and watch it. It's incredible. Um, it is a series of stills. It's not a, um, a motion film. But um, the amount of care that went into producing the project is so evident in in this kind of documentary video of the process. Um, it addresses how it was kickstarted, how it grew from being a photographer and a model into being a bunch of collaborators worldwide located on, I believe, three different continents. Yeah, it's a huge project. And it just sends a signal that, you know, we've seen this in YouTube where people have made, you know, Star Wars fan videos and then wound up working on Star Wars movies. You know, that if something is really well done, there is a lineage, there is an established lineage. Make your obsession real. Pour your your creativity into the thing that you're obsessed with. If you think you can make something better than Hollywood can make, then make it. They won't get mad. 
You know, Hollywood's not going to get mad at you for doing something really well. They're going to reward you for it because Hollywood loves success and they now appreciate what social media success can bring to the studio. It's, it's a feather in the cap. They want to work with people that have fan bases. They want to work with people who can, who can make good things. I mean, they'll even work with people who are difficult to work with who have made good product because it's still a feather in the cap. You know, Josh Trank, who you know, famously got into so many um, fights with the studio over his Fantastic Four, got that gig because he made his own project real. And that project, while autonomous and therefore much more easier to get made, was pretty incredible, Chronicle. Uh, whether or not those same people can work in a studio system, um, you know, clearly it seems like he couldn't. But, you know, he hasn't disappeared. They'll, they'll give him a, another chance. You know, as, as much noise as that causes, as big a, of, of a fight as he put up with the studio before and after the film was released, someone's going to go back and look at Chronicle again and say, you know what, He's, he'll write a script or he'll work with somebody else who's writing a script. It will make its way onto someone's desk and they'll be like, this wasn't a failure of director. This was a failure of studio oversight. And he'll work again. You know, Hollywood's very forgiving that way. You almost have to have like four like real duds in a row to disappear. I mean, look at John Travolta's career for crying out loud. <laughs> but I guess that's probably a good, a pretty good place to end. So um, again, I want to, I definitely want to thank you for coming on the show, Christine. Yeah, thanks for having me, Christine Adams, and um, I am of course Matt Kennedy. And you have been listening to Pod Sequentialism on the Meltdown Network, produced and engineered by Mr. Mason Booker.